The B2B sales world is in turmoil. Quota attainment is down. Revenue growth is slowed. Turnover is up. All of this is in the face of ever-increasing pressure to perform. Is it a surprise that the average sales leader stays in place for only 12 to 18 months? That's barely enough time to start executing the strategy. These problems are fixable, and we are going to serve the sales leadership community with this show. I'm Lucas Price. I've launched and exited B2B startups and built elite sales organizations. Now I want to give back by bringing you this podcast, Building Elite Sales Teams. It will be full of actionable best practices to help you excel as a sales leader. We're going to burn the churn. Let's get back to winning. Building Elite Sales Teams is on. Welcome, I'm Lucas Price, and I'm here to learn with you about building elite sales teams. As a sales leader, how should I think about implementing a sales methodology? Do I teach my team about medic, add a few fields to Salesforce and move on? Or is there more to it than that? Is medic even a sales methodology? And if not, what is it? In this episode, we have Paul Butterfield with us to discuss how to select, adopt, and measure a sales methodology. Paul is the founder and CEO of Revenue Flywheel Group, where he passionately transformed sales teams into customer-centric organizations that distinguish themselves by how they sell rather than with price or product. As an executive board president of the Sales Enablement Society, Paul draws on 20 years of expertise to elevate the role of sales enablement in organizations worldwide through engagement, communication, research, and development. Paul has designed, built, and led high-impact enablement strategies and teams for companies like Vonage, GE, Nice in Contact, and InStructure. In addition, he's coached go-to-market leaders from Expedia, Aspen Media, and Red Wing Shoes in both change management and sales methodology adoption. Prior to his career as a revenue enablement leader, Paul led channel and direct sales organizations for world-class companies, including Intuit, Microsoft, and Hewlett-Packard. He helps organizations develop a culture where every customer touchpoint aligns with revenue growth objectives and creates the most positive impact possible. Paul, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Lucas. I've been looking forward to this. Is there anything else that our listeners should know about you and your background? When you and I were prepping for the session, I, we figured out that we we're both passionate about scuba diving and ocean conservation. So that's a pretty big part of my life as well. But I think oh, that'll that, do it. Yeah, that's great. How did you get your start in sales? That's funny. When I was in college, I sold Encyclopedia Britannica. So I, I, that's the first actual sales job I can think of. It was a pretty good job, actually, for a university job. They were anti-door-to-door. It was all done through lead generation, and we paid for those leads. It was 100% commission, but the commission on each set was pretty good. So for a college job, it was great. Plus, they offered insurance if you sold a minimum number of sets every quarter. Started with that, and out of school, my, my first job was in sales and pretty much been that way ever since. I, I did a short stint in marketing with Novell, but decided that I was a sales guy, not a marketer. Typically to move into sales leadership, it means you have a certain amount of success in sales. And usually yep. that success in sales comes from an inner determination. What mm -hmm. gave you the determination to succeed in sales? I don't know that it's just succeeding in sales. It's just something that's just baked into me. Yeah. If I'm going to do something, if I'm going to invest in something, I'm going to go all in. And whether that's professionally, in hobbies, that sort of thing. So I think for me, that translates over into selling. If I'm going to be in sales, I'm going to make the effort to be successful at it. Now, it doesn't mean I got it right all the time. Plenty yeah. of mistakes. 
but I did see success. And in the case of HP, which was my first tech sales job, I'm going to chalk a lot of it up to just plain hard work. There's probably some luck in there as well. When I looked back at the team that I was on, we were a new team. What had happened is HP had started this team and I was based out of St. Louis. So it's based out of the district office there, which covered six states. And that team grew successfully. And so they opened up another leadership role. And when I just looked at those that joined the same time I did, yes, I had better sell-through results. I had better sales results. But I also remember there were some data issues with our territories at the beginning. And I know that some that I went through onboarding with were frustrated and sat back and, and got angry and waited for HP to figure out our records or our territory alignments. I took what they did give me and I went out and I started to knock on doors and take chances. And so I think there was just some of that in there, right? I just, I yeah. just, I wanted to get out there. I wanted to prove myself. I wanted to show what I could do. I had confidence and I just didn't wait. And I think that made an impression as well. I realize this is a bit of a personal question that kind of also mm -hmm. touches on the professional, but I think that that work ethic, that ability to go all in, that determination that you talked about for mm -hmm. most people, it comes from something specific in their background. And some of it is something specific professionally and some of it is something specific personally. Is there something that you'd point to in your background that gave you that work ethic, that determination, that desire to mm -hmm. succeed and achieve? I had parents that loved me, but at the same time were very demanding and almost abusive in, in the fact that anything my brothers and I did was never enough, was never good enough. And it was this constant, it was not necessarily a positive way to grow up. But I think that one of the things that did come out of it is a determination to actually show that, yeah, I am and I can. Yeah. Just a guess. Don't know. Pop psychology. I, I appreciate you sharing that. Tell, tell us about the transition to, to sales leadership and how you decided to go into sales leadership or how that happened. Usually someone yeah. has to take a chance on you for you to move into sales leadership. Yeah, they did. His name's Lee Wells. Lee, I haven't talked to Lee in a few years. If you're out there, buddy the team that I was on, and, and I'm focusing really on my tech sales side. Prior to that, I'd run my own consulting agency for four years, and but it was in a very different industry. On the case of that, I was new to tech, was not new to selling. I did well enough that when that opening came up and I applied, I was given a good shot, a serious shot at it. There were other great applicants as well. And so you're right, Lee did take a chance on me. They relocated me, in fact, even from St. Louis to Salt Lake City, because that's where this HP office in Salt Lake is where the job was based at the time. And so... They did. They really gave me my shot. One of the things that I started to try to figure out quickly is how did I do things differently than sales leaders that I'd reported to? And mm -hmm. not that my leadership at that point had not been great, but I had worked for not great sales leaders previously. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I took my inspiration from a book that really isn't about sales at all, but one that I'm sure you're familiar with, which is Stephen Covey's Seven Habits. Yeah. And found in that book leadership concepts that I could apply in my role leading this sales team, and many of them were my peers up until my promotion, that, that really helped me find my way. And at some point, you were exposed to a number of different sales methodologies and started to become interested mm -hmm. in that. Did that interest start as a seller or as a sales leader? Like, where does that fit into your career? What I got really serious about it was when I was a sales leader for Microsoft. That was, there were actually a couple of team, few channel teams that, that reported to me. And I think it was in the summer, yeah, it was in the summer of 2002 that Microsoft brought us up to Seattle and we went through three and a half day workshop for a sales methodology that they were bringing in. I'd been through other sales trainings of various types and some good ones, some not so good ones, 
But there was something about this particular methodology that just really made sense to me. And there were a few things about, there were a few things we can get into that, things about that methodology, because other methodologies I found have those essential elements as well. But at the time, it was all new to me. And and a lot of it was focused on how do I sit down and have a business level conversation with a prospect? Now, in my case, it wasn't me, it was my team. But how are we, they had us go through first as leaders before the teams went through. And how are we setting up our training, our teams, coaching our teams to go in and have business level conversations as opposed to product feature dump. And I was as guilty as anybody up to that point in doing that. I thought I was doing the right thing. Okay, we're not talking, I'm talking about product features and benefits and I'm selling the sizzle, not the steak. And I'm dating myself a little bit some of those terms, but that's how we, a lot of us were, you know, taught growing up in sales. This was a very different kind of approach. Go in, develop the business acumen to have a conversation, understand what's going on. Why did they choose to meet with us? Something in their business isn't working right or they wouldn't be talking to us. It's our job as sellers to uncover what that is. Even if they're not particularly great at articulating it, we need to be skilled enough to help them do that. Because again, they've come to us, they, whether we did outbound or was inbound, they've chosen to spend time with us. We need to make sure it's worth everybody's while. That was the big change for me is, is going in with that kind of conversation as opposed to the typical, here's a pitch deck. Let me show you my product. A lot of the ways that we've been taught to, to sell up to that point. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I love that training your people. Here's how you're going to have business level conversations and using the sales mm -hmm. methodology is the way mm -hmm. to do that. There's all sorts of different sales methodologies out there. Some yep. are perhaps better than worse, but I think some of them are better depending on your context. How mm -hmm. would a sales leader decide, evaluate, like which sales methodology is going to be best for my context? What are some of the factors and things that, that you'd be thinking about in that situation? You posed an interesting question in the introduction and, and you'd mentioned, specifically mentioned Medic, right? Do I roll out Medic? There are some really great frameworks and approaches to sales that in my experience are not full methodologies. And so as a leader, one of the first things that I recommend people are looking at is the methodology or the methodologies that we're evaluating, are they full cycle? Are they going to help my team have the skills that they need to develop funnel, qualify appropriately and make sure only real opportunities we have a shot at get into the funnel? Is it going to give them the skills and ability to build a multi-thread and build an effective sphere of influence in the account? What about deal velocity and just overall sales cycle control? You never completely control a buying cycle with a buyer, but you at least want to be in the driver's seat and give yourself a shot. So is the methodology teaching a way for teaching my team how to go and negotiate, for example, some people call it a mutual plan, some people call it a sequence of events, but some sort of mechanism where jointly we're getting consensus with the prospect that we're going to go through this form of evaluation process. Is it teaching my team how to negotiate? There are a lot of great sales approaches out there that are good at the top of the funnel, but not all of them cover the entire cycle. And that's one of the first things that I recommend looking for because it, most sales leaders I work with, that's what they want. Yes, they want better qualifying. They want better discovery, but they want all that other stuff too. I brought Medic up because it is very popular and, is. And, and you touched on a few issues there. So let's just get into that real quickly there. Is Medic a sales methodology? Medic's not a sales methodology. And that's not my opinion. Andy White, who is one of the online certification uh, schools that many of us went through for Medic, also yeah. says it's not a methodology. 
However, somehow that perception has grown up out in the marketplace that it is. I don't want to dismiss Medic. I think that yeah. for a lot of organizations, it is a far superior way of qualification framework than what they're using, especially if they're not using anything or if they're using BANT. It's miles ahead of that, but it's not a full methodology. I, I agree. A lot of companies that. I know actually use it with a methodology even, right? That's their qualification right. framework. And then they'll use a methodology to cover everything else. I've seen that. Part of the reasons that people that can get, think of it differently is they're used to ban as a qualification yeah. methodology. And medic is a qualification methodology that's really qualifying the deal into your pipeline throughout all of the stages instead of just something you right. do up front. So I think that's why people think, oh, it belongs in a different category than BANT or some of the other method qualification. And I think it does belong in a different category, but I agree mm -hmm. with you, it's not a full methodology. Yeah. The other thing I've seen where it can be a benefit for a company is sometimes organizations for a variety of reasons aren't ready to go through the full change management cycle of customizing and rolling out a full uh, methodology implementation. Maybe it's something they want to do, but for whatever reason right now, and I've seen that some of these other frameworks like Medic Again, it's still a vast improvement. It still offers a better customer experience. It still tightens up the process in a lot of ways if it's used, if it's implemented effectively, but it's a lighter lift for lack of a better term. And to be honest, doing that is better than continuing to, to do things the way that you were that aren't a great customer experience because Medic is not a bad customer experience at all. If we set aside it, Medic for a second and we're thinking, okay, there's a number of different full methodologies out there. Maybe one company sells to enterprise, another company sells to mid-market. They have different sales mm -hmm. motions. What would lead them to, to select methodology A versus methodology B? What, how would they think about the factors in terms of deciding which is the right methodology for them. It needs to be a full methodology. That's true mm -hmm. no matter what the mm -hmm. company. What are some of the differences that would take people to different methodologies? I go back to what I experienced when I went through that first, the certification. It was, was customer-centric selling was the name of the methodology okay. that, that we were using. And I actually used that methodology at a couple of companies post-Microsoft as well. But that just happened to be the one at the time. And I stand by what I learned there. And that is, what is that discovery experience like? Is it pitch deck at a demo? If it is, back up. Because that is not the discovery experience. And frankly, you're not going to get the outcomes from discovery that you want with that. So when you're looking at methodologies, how are they teaching the team to discover? Are they teaching them again? Are they teaching them to go in, develop the business acumen, helping them develop business acumen to go in and have conversations, to understand what's not working well today? What's the impact of that? What is the future state that you have for the company? What are the potential benefits from that? There's got to be some reason you want to get to that state. That's what discovery should feel like. In fact, product, your product by name shouldn't even come up most of the time because it's a thoughtful, curious conversation trying yeah. to uncover and define with the prospect. At the end of that cycle, if you've done it well, they should have the beginnings of a vision in their own mind of how what some product or service that you offer are going to help them bridge that gap and get to that future state. If you yeah. haven't helped them develop that vision, you're probably not going to get very far with them because what we think isn't particularly relevant. Of course, we think that our solution is going to fix their problems, right? They, they're yeah. not going to give that a lot of credence, but if we can help them start to see it, now we know we have an opportunity that we can work. So customer-centric selling, correct me if I'm wrong, and I may be, but it has mm -hmm. an emphasis on shared artifacts with the customer, a, a letter to the mm -hmm. champion where they agree that yeah. this is a business problem you're solving, a sequence of events mm -hmm. for how the, the mm -hmm. 
process of evaluating and implementing is going to be laid out that gets agreed to mm -hmm. by the customer. It attempts to remove some of the subjectivity of just what the rep thinks is going to happen from the exactly. stage of the pipeline. It can only it advance if you have certain artifacts in place. I, I'm not an expert in it, but it seems like a great tool for me. Who is it bad for? Like, where would you say, oh, customer-centric yeah. selling is probably not the best methodology for this type of organization? I can only speak to my own experience. Okay. But when I went to Instructure, I was recruited there by the CRO. As I said, I think a story is the best way I can illustrate this. I was recruited there yeah. by the CRO to come in and build out enablement. He was the first global head of sales they'd had. Prior to that, everything was run regionally. And he wanted standardized enablement, standardized processes, et cetera. When I got there, and, and this individual knew me well and recruited me, and, and our assumption, both of our assumptions was that we would bring what I had used and implemented successfully across multiple sales organizations, which was customer set. What I found when I got to Instructure was a very different type of sales team. This is going back to 20, fall of 2019, but if I remember a third, maybe even closer to a half of the sales team were in their first sales job but were in their 30s and 40s. They were not, it was not anywhere close to the beginning of their career. But the nature of ed tech, which is what Instructure 100% ed tech, was that many of the best sellers had come from being former customers. So they were former educators or IT directors from a university that had used the products and that sort of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that, but without previous SaaS experience, without previous commercial sales experience, as good as customer-centric was, I decided it wasn't, right? It was just a lot of commercial all at once in a non-commercial environment for sellers that were used to selling very much on relationships. And if you go back to that point in Instructure's life cycle, they had were just jumping over Jeff Moore's chasm. When that mm -hmm. product, when their products came out, they really were that much better and that much different that you get the early adoption, the, the tailwinds of early adopters and visionaries that are going to jump in and buy it because they see it and they get it relationships do get you a long way in ed tech. And, and so there was a combination of things that have been working very well for them. But by the time my boss got there, that chasm, we're, we're on the other side of the chasm. And so now how do we teach people to go in and talk to the skeptics and the laggards and help to build a case for change? Ed, ed, educational institutions, I learned, are even more resistant to change than businesses in, in many cases. So we needed something that was going to be effective of that, but also something that was going to be more easily adapted and understood by my sellers. So a lot there that I'm sharing, but hopefully that, that gives listeners some insight is both are great methodology. The methodology we ended up going with is also a great methodology. We had great results with it. It's not that either is wrong. They both had the same core elements to them or else I would never have moved forward with the one that I chose. They were enough different that in that case, it didn't make sense. The other place that I've seen some methodologies are a little overkill is if it's an incredibly transactional sale. One mm. or two call close, relatively small amount. You can scale any methodology down, but it takes some work because what you don't want to do is ever overcomplicate the sales cycle and create a negative buyer experience because you're dragging things out unnecessarily. But the world that I live in has always been pretty technical and not a one or two call close. That's great insights. In structure, you brought in this very commercial methodology. You wanted to find something less commercial, but that had the same elements. How is it able to keep the objectivity in the pipeline and the process that can be followed every time without having those kind of same commercial conversations? It was really the way that we were teaching. So one of the strengths of the me first methodology that I'd used for all those years was how prescriptive it was. 
and the fact that reps had a very clear blueprint of what to start doing differently the Monday after training, which is often a problem with new methodologies is there's, that's not clear. And so then people go back to what they're comfortable with and things don't stick. The methodology for what it's where I evaluated four and looked at them very deeply. The one that I ended up selecting for that environment was called Selling Through Curiosity. And Selling Through Curiosity taught these folks how to do the same type of quality discovery but it was just in the how, the way we were teaching them to do the questioning, the way that we were teaching them to be curious, no pun intended. It was something that I recognized or suspected would be a very comfortable way of doing questioning and discovery that felt less salesy for these folks that were not coming from a hardcore sales background. And, yeah. and it was well-received for the most part seemed to do well. We, we took leadership through it first. That went really well and generally got very good feedback from the reps. So in that yeah. case, that methodology also made sense and was also effective. I think that's the key for people to remember. There is not one true sales methodology in my experience. I, I heard, I don't remember who said this once, but someone said, what is the best, what is the best methodology? And the response was the one that you consistently apply. There's a lot of great directions I could go with that. You were looking at four methodologies. You end up selecting mm -hmm. Selling Through Curiosity. Can you tell us a little bit about how that went of learning about the four methodologies and deciding which one to go with? I invested in going through. All of them had online resources of some type or other that you could go through and get the online version. In the case of two of those, I went and did that. I invested the few hundred dollars, whatever it was to do the, knowing that was a lighter version of what we would roll out, but I wanted to understand the concepts. In one case, I had used the methodology also at another company and knew it pretty well. So I mostly just went back and checked in to see what they were, had anything changed? What were they up to? That sort of thing. But there were a couple of others that, that I really dove into heavily. When I thought that I had the right selection, I approached that company and actually asked them about an opportunity to not only myself, but someone from my team who had been at the company longer, much longer than I had, whose opinion I trusted, if we could go through and audit one of their live classes, just to again, see, because we're at this point, we're in the post COVID lockdown world yeah. and everybody was still, I wouldn't say figuring out how to deliver these sorts of things online. Some of the companies had do, been doing it for a while, but I wanted to see what that experience was like. Because if you'd asked me prior to 2020, if you could deliver, effectively deliver a multi-day workshop through Zoom and have it be compelling and get that same interaction, the real learning in those workshops doesn't happen when the instructor's talking. The real learning happens in the case study groups and the role playing and the breakout and the that's where it happens. And could you recreate that on Zoom? I wasn't sure that you could. We didn't have a lot of choices in 2020 and 2021, but I wanted to see it for myself. So that was really the final step. And then realized, went through it. And this other individual that agreed to go through with me, were like, yes, this is what our sellers need. And we moved forward. But I wasn't confident going and making the recommendation without seeing it since I had never used it in the field. You chose a new methodology you'd never used before mm -hmm. to a large degree, like you're staking a little bit of your reputation and your future success mm -hmm. on the right methodology. So that online class gave you the confidence in order to be able to do that. Or was there anything else that you had to work through in order to get the confidence? So, hey, this is going to be the one that's really going to help us here. At I have a pretty strong network of folks that have led sales and, and enablement at, at various size companies. And so, of course, that the opinions and the experiences in my network were, were considerable. 
And in one case, a good friend of mine had implemented that as a global methodology, selling through curiosity at the company where she was. And it was a company that at the time I'd been competing, the company I worked for, we were competitors, but she and I were friends. And I was well aware of the, the enormous success that they had with it. At the same time, I was seeing great success with customer-centric at Vonage, but she was overusing this methodology at one of our competitors. That was definitely a piece of it. Since we weren't competitors anymore, I was, it was a little easier to pick up the phone and have her talk openly with me <laughs> about you know, why it worked, for why she thought it was successful for them, why it had worked. And so that was other validation that I did. Part of what I'm gathering is that you had a, you, you did the research, you had an instinct about mm -hmm. which one would be the best one, but you didn't just go with that instinct. You did put in a lot of work in terms of auditing a class, mm -hmm. reaching out to other people's in your network to validate whether you were going down the right path, because it is a big decision. But I, I think that's a great learning for all of us in, in terms mm -hmm. of the steps we can make when we're making a really big decision like that. I'm going to change the topic a little bit here, only a little bit. Mm -hmm. You talked mm -hmm. before about, all right, the Monday after, what are people going to do? What are the things that you do when you're implementing a new methodology to make sure that it gets used, measure whether it's being used, check out how, if it's helping, if it's being successful, how do you think about adoption and making sure that you succeed with the adoption? Again, it's key that you've got that business conversation element. I just can't overstress that. I'm working very close with methodology now, different than the other two. It's a bit more modern in some of the approaches, but it still has the same elements. And so before you teach anybody a class, the first thing that's critical is do a survey internally and find out how much knowledge has been documented about your buyers. That typically would live in product and product marketing, most places I've worked, but how well has it been documented? Who are buying personas? What problems are those personas solving with our products and services after they do buy? What are our case studies? What are the results we're seeing? And then is that information in a way that's digestible and teachable to take to salespeople? The reason that's so critical is we're getting ready to roll out a methodology that's going to teach them how to go in and talk to those buying personas. But they need that business background. They need a, a good understanding of what's going on in that person's world and the problems that they are typically solving with what it is that we happen to sell. So that's step one. Make sure you have that if you don't take the time to develop it because this becomes part of the prescription. So people are coming out of their training. Here's some best practices I recommend. Number one, a good methodology, you and I, we hinted this earlier, is also going to teach them to have crisp, clear, objective criteria on whether or not something is an opportunity and makes it into the pipeline. We all, especially in organizations where you have SDRs and AEs, you, you have what I call the hook a brother up syndrome, right? It's the end of the quarter. It's come on, dude. I just need to convert one more to hit my next tier. I'll get you two really good ones next quarter if you do. We know it happens. It happens. And that's just one example where you get rock fights that break out because SDRs think AEs only want to cherry pick and AEs think SDRs are setting appointments with anybody that breathes and that whole thing. But a good methodology is going to have, okay, here are the four or five specific questions that we need to have be able to answer after that first AE discovery meeting. We're not finished with discovery. But we need to know enough after that first meeting to believe that there is an opportunity here, that there is a gap in where they are and where they need to get to that's significant enough for them to change. Change is a massive thing. And, and, and when you're talking to 
a prospect, you're really trying to help them determine two things. One, is the current situation untenable enough that change is necessary or can they just put a bandaid on it and get by? And once they've determined that change is warranted, are you the change? Is your company, your product, your service the change? And so we want to make sure that when people are coming out of that, they're having those conversations. Now, Let's go back to those criteria. So now we've established, say our criteria is this, current state, you and I have been talking, current state, impact of current state, desired future state, potential benefit they expect from the future state. Let's just start with those four. We're coming out of this and that's our new criteria. If, if we get a conversation that tells us those things, we've all agreed we're gonna convert this, the AE is gonna take it and gonna work it. What about all those opportunities that the AE had in their pipeline the day they showed up for class? Yeah. They're still gonna be, a lot of thrash and a lot of potential wasted time. So one of the best practices that I have implemented with many organizations, and this takes a little bit of stomach, I'll be honest, is that coming out of it, give those AEs a one or two week grace period to go through and do a very hard evaluation. That the stuff that's in their pipeline, being brutally honest, are those real opportunities? Because we both know there's stuff that makes it into your funnel, just takes on a life of its own. It just keeps getting punted further and further along. Let's get them out. You've got the two-week grace period, no questions asked, get all the garbage out of your pipeline. But at the end of that, then anything you're signing up for, you then either need to show that meets that criteria because now you're applying what you've just learned or that you're going to go back and do additional discovery and uncover that criteria before keeping it moving forward. That's a game I hate that term gets abused, but it is. It's a game changer because many organizations don't go through that step. And so then the AEs are stuck still trying to progress opportunities that started off in all the old ways. Right. So that's another area that I've seen make a big difference. Companies get a little stressed about it sometimes because they will see a $700 million pipeline all of a sudden maybe look like $500 million. But the thing yeah. I try to help them remember is it was always $500 million and, and those deals were probably never going to happen anyway. So yeah. it's better to know where you are and then build back up with real opportunities. If a listener is thinking about implementing a new methodology, mm -hmm. what are the things that they should be thinking about to make sure that they avoid mistakes? Make, make yourself an evaluation rubric or something to make sure that you're, you're doing that. Then as you are interfacing and talking to these potential providers, how are they selling to you? I know that sounds rudimentary, but I have seen more than once sales methodology companies that offer a terrible selling experience. To me, that's a huge red flag. If they're not, either they're not using what they sell in selling to you, or they are using it and it sucks. But either way, think about that. Are you enjoying the sales experience? Is this the experience you want your? So start with that. I would also then, how much ability do they have to work with you? and help you understand how to customize it. Customizing could come from a couple of different ways. One that I see very commonly is, remember we talked a few minutes ago about long and complex sales cycles. In companies where I've worked, the enterprise sales cycle versus the mid-market or SMB sales cycle is the enterprise far more complicated, far lengthier. And so is this a methodology that has the ability to be a little bit like Legos, that you can take some pieces out that are overkill for a small to medium business where maybe you're talking with a co-founder or at minimum a general manager, but it's much easier decision to cycle and you don't want to bog it down with all the things enterprise needs. The good methodologies you can do that. And I have we, we have done it successfully. So make sure it's customized for your, because the whole idea is to create a great buyer experience. So let's make sure we can do that. The other thing I would look at is, are they going to, what's their track record? There is a methodology I'm working with heavily these days called gap selling. And one of the things that appealed to me about them 
is all the things that I look for in a great methodology, but they've got a bit more, they've added a bit more of a modern approach to it. And the way that it's being delivered, very impressed with the online delivery mechanism they built and that sort of thing. So that's the last thing I want to mention. We are probably never going to go back to everyone flying in from all over the world to sit in a classroom for three and a half days. I'm pretty sure that ship has sailed. It still makes sense in some cases. But does this methodology translate in a classroom just as well as online? And can it be delivered as effectively? Do people get the same learning outcomes? Because not all of them are great at it. A lot of times it was like a knee-jerk reaction after pandemic. Oh my gosh, we got to figure out a way to deliver this online. Whereas some of the others have been developing this for years and have a very mature model. So I would look at that. As we wrap up our conversation here, mm -hmm. what are the most important two or three takeaways that you would leave with our listeners in terms of what they should think about in terms of successfully selecting and implementing a methodology? We'll start again with what is that discovery experience? Discovery is not a pitch deck. Discovery is not a demo. Those are very look at us motions. They're not customer centric. They're not outside in. So does the methodology teach your reps and provide them with the tools and skills to take an outside in view and understand what's going on in their customer's world and build a case from that? The second thing is, as I said, what is your experience as you're evaluating? Do you like how you're being sold to? Because reasonably, that's how this company is going to teach your, what you assume is going to teach your sales team to go sell. So how does that feel? right? Are they, is that the experience you want for your customers? What is the ability of a salesperson, or excuse me, what ability are they going to have after methodology? Again, let's go back. We didn't have a lot of time to talk about it, but building out that sphere of influence, do that multi-threading. Every report I read shows more average stakeholders in on opportunities, right? And it's probably just going to continue that way. So that's a critical skill. Does the methodology talk about it or does it just talk about discovery as a one and done or not really get into what do you do after that first discovery? And then finally, it's that deal control and negotiate. Make sure that there are, those concepts are also tied in. But I think the biggest thing, Lucas, that I would say is make sure that one way or another, this methodology is going to allow you to build your forecasting and reporting around predictable customer inputs that the team is going to be collecting for every opportunity. So that now your forecasting is not based on a rep's opinion or a manager's opinion. It is going to be based on customer inputs, which is going to just increase your predictability and the accuracy of your forecast alone with that. Those are all great points. I wrote down a couple as well along the way. One, I really like the story you shared about how you researched it and do your research. And it's a big decision. Make sure you're investing properly into that decision. Use a methodology that brings objectivity to your pipeline, which you discussed. Mm -hmm. That was on your list as well. And then the third one that I wrote down is like, when you implement your new methodology, requalify your pipeline, see which of the steps that you've missed from the methodology and, and make sure that it's in the right stage based on the steps that you've completed and the steps that you haven't completed. So I think those are all some great points. To wrap up here, where can people find you online? Pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. They can go to www.revenueflyworkgroup.com and there's a place there to contact me. But if they go to my LinkedIn profile, I'm pretty quick to answer any direct messages. They can also book time with me, but I'm not hard to find and I'm happy to talk to anybody. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode of Building Elite Sales Teams, please leave, leave us a review in your podcast app. You can find more content online at yardstick.team slash blog. And if you have any feedback from us, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us today on Building Elite Sales Teams. Please remember to give us a five-star review. And if you want more information about Yardstick, you can find us at www.yardstick.team. 
You can follow me or connect with me on LinkedIn by searching for Lucas Price.